0: 80% of the transmission is coming from 5 to 10% of the population. It does appear that there are some people that are more likely to spread the virus, and there is a suggestion out there that at events, there's a higher likelihood that somebody will be in the crowd that is a super spreader. And that's why having crowds is problematic, because it increases the probability that there will be a super spreader in the room. Once we get to the vaccine stage, We have lots of advantages. Programs
1: are tried and true, tested. The providers know how to do it. The systems are in place. Reimbursement systems are clear and in place. Once we get to the vaccine stage, I don't anticipate a whole lot of problems because there's a lot fewer unknowns. We know the system is pretty good at getting vaccine out.
2: It's an unusual thing to see in a company like Pfizer or Moderna, that they want to make sure they get to the market when it's safe, not when they're first. That, to me, shows that there are scientists in charge saying we need to go through each one of these steps because they all have a purpose, not to delay the inevitable, but to make sure that we don't do harm.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and our roundtable of experts returns as COVID-19 itself returns to a level of new cases that we haven't seen since June. Commentators speak of COVID fatigue as a reason that new case counts are up, and many of us can relate. But October is not June, and November does not have to be like July. Remember what we do know. Masks work, as does physical distancing and avoiding higher-risk situations that could become super-spreader events. In fact, new data on superspreading is part of today's roundtable, and it continues to point to this fact. We've got to be as COVID smart as is humanly possible. Stay at home as much as you can, wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. Our actions today do make a difference. If you're looking for reinforcement on why such COVID smart community actions are needed, you'll find it in this episode. Data from the latest large-scale epidemiological work, new insights into the realities of contact tracing, what ER treatments look like now compared to months ago, where we are headed with vaccines, and whether Arizona is on track to systematically get vaccine distribution right. It's all right here in the next 30 minutes or so. So let's get to it. It's time to dig into life with COVID-19 as of late October 2020. We have our COVID-19 roundtable returning today, just shy of Halloween, joining us from Arizona State University, Joshua LaBare. Josh, how are you? I'm great. Good to see you. Thanks for being back. From the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble, how are you, sir?
1: Good. I love October.
3: Also joining us today, the one and the only Dr. Nicholas Vasquez. Nick, how are you, sir?
2: I'm doing great.
3: Let's get started. Josh, you are first. Because five days ago, you were the one who was quoted as saying, things don't look so good. They look a lot more like mid-June than you wanted them to. Based on the numbers today, how is that statement you made five days ago playing out?
0: I I think it's still playing out. I think we are definitely in a surge in Arizona. We are not the worst state by far. But today, our seven-day trailing average for new cases topped 1,000. And it has been on a steady rise since the end of September. So really now a month of continuous rise, which means that we are logarithmically growing here.
3: You also said five days ago that hopefully Arizonans knew what would work to keep us from having another surge like June.
0: I do feel that they know what works, whether or not they're willing to implement it is another question. Clearly, some of them are not. Some people are not wearing masks all the time. They're not spacing not doing the mitigation factors as we'd hoped they would.
3: Nick, is there a view changing for you from the emergency room level?
0: My personal experience is that I've
2: admitted more people with COVID. I'm seeing more of them. It is not like it was in April or like it was in June yet. My experience in April was everywhere I looked, someone had COVID or COVID potential findings. Either they came in for fever or a cough, or we would just incidentally find that they had x-rays that look like COVID. It was all over the place, uh, everywhere I turned. June was like that, but 7 out of 10 on the scale. Now we have had an increase in number of patients that we're seeing with COVID. That started about two weeks ago. And so it is slowly getting more active. What did happen over the last week or so is that the overall volume of patients coming into the emergency department is going up which makes me think we now have our answer to, are people from Maine, Minnesota, and Manitoba coming to Arizona? And I think the answer is yes.
3: Will, I intentionally did not call on you first because you don't like discussing case counts, but what counts do you want to talk about and what are you seeing trend-wise in Arizona right now with the numbers?
1: Well, I like the team at Biodesign's website and I go there all the time. I like that seven-day trailing average that Josh was just talking about. Because I think that gives a nice smoothed out perspective of what's happening. And you see this steady increase. It looks quite honestly like the epi curve and like the seven day trailing average look like at the very end of May and the very beginning of June. It doesn't look like mid-June yet. That's where it was really going exponential. But it's steadily increasing. I'm not concerned that we're, at least in the near term, going to end up maxing out our hospitals again. But I am concerned that kids are going to lose their opportunity for in-person school here pretty soon. I am concerned that elected officials may be quick on the draw to suspend elective procedures again, which would be a real shame because it doesn't have to be that way. If we had a statewide face covering mandate in place, and if we get some more forceful inspections of the bars and restaurants and nightclubs that would go a long way towards moderating what we're seeing. I'm not saying it would flatten it out, but it would surely help.
3: Who would be doing that, and how does that extra oversight get paid for?
1: The CARES Act money is there to be used for intervention purposes, and there's a great intervention which we could use, which is to get that CARES Act money out to the county health departments and convert those health inspectors. I used to do that in the 80s. I was a sanitarian. You go around from restaurant to restaurant and inspect for food temperatures and is the dumpster lid closed and that stuff. So those people are out there in the field and they could be converted to working on both proactive COVID mitigation inspections in bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, but then they could also follow up on the complaints. But right now that isn't really happening. And you have to use CARES Act money for that because those environmental health programs are paid for with restaurant fees that are justified by the fact that you're enforcing the food code, not COVID stuff. They really do need that CARES Act money so that they can repurpose those folks. I think those are two common sense interventions that we could do right now. I'm not saying it would work 100%, but it might actually moderate this trajectory that we're on.
3: Do you have a sense for why those protocols are not being given energy right now?
1: Here's what I know happened is that the health director, Dr. Christ, went to the county health departments and said, hey, uh, if you were to get CARES Act money to follow up on the complaint investigations, what would it cost? And they gave some numbers back. And there was never an agreement made between the counties and the state on those contracts. I think it was just insufficient funds. But the money's there. And what better use for it than to repurpose some inspectors to get better compliance in those exact environments that we've now established are the super spreading type of environments, bars, restaurants, and nightclubs and indoor environments. So I don't know why exactly, but I know it's possible. It just isn't happening.
3: Josh, let's touch base on super spreading for a second. We did have the study that came out of India about a month ago now. It got some significant coverage, but not a lot. Can you help listeners understand what that study said and what it means about how the virus spreads?
0: Yeah, I think a key statistic from that study, and actually there was an earlier study months ago, that both of them point to the fact that 80% of the transmission is coming from 5 to 10% of the population. I think that's probably the most relevant statistic here. That means that not everybody who gets this transmits it. In fact, one of the other statistics was that around 70% of people who get it never transmitted to anyone. It's a small fraction of people that are giving it to the majority of people who get it. And there have been a variety of people who commented on this, and it's a combination of the superspreader event and the super individual. So the event, of course, is an event where people are gathered together, perhaps not wearing masks the way they ought to be, perhaps not maintaining distance the way it ought to be. And for whatever reason, out of that event, many people get infected. I mean, probably the most notorious now is the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, which happened in North Dakota and moved North Dakota to the highest number of per capita cases in the country. Over 250,000 people probably may have been infected from that event. But then there's also this idea of a super spreader individual. We don't really fully understand that, why certain people are better at spreading. Some people have hypothesized that maybe they're better at stabilizing the virus. Some people hypothesize that they just have high viral counts. Other people have suggested that they may have other viruses concomitant with the COVID virus, and that makes them better at spreading. Don't fully know, but it does appear that there are some people that are more likely to spread the virus. And there is a suggestion out there that at these super spreader events, there's a higher likelihood that somebody will be in the crowd that is a super spreader. And that's why having crowds is problematic, because it increases the probability that there will be a super spreader in the room.
3: Nick, there really is no way to identify a super spreader.
2: Not at all. I would compare this to how... SARS-2 or COVID-19 is different than SARS-1 and MERS. With SARS-1 and MERS, people got deathly ill quickly. And you could identify cases very quickly. The COVID-19 case definition beyond I lost my sense of smell and my sense of taste is very nonspecific. I got a fever. I feel a little fatigued. I don't feel good. I got a cough. It's not super accurate. The one nice thing is that COVID is a lower respiratory, which means it's not runny nose, it's not sinus pressures, it's not stuff like that. So you can start to rule it out. But maturity of these people, maybe nine out of 10, walk around completely asymptomatic, especially during the time when their viral load is the highest, where they're going to spread it the most. It's just this really difficult place that we've been in hospitals since March, which is universal masking for all, assume everybody has it, because you'll never know until about 14 days later who does. And we're still in the same boat.
3: Yeah, sounds like we should have face coverings and we should stay physically distant from each other. Does that sound like a plan? Will Hubble, since the last time we spoke on this podcast, on this roundtable, your colleague, Dr. Bob England, and you issued a blog post about contact tracing. Give us an update on what that post was and how it differs from what most people think of relative to contact tracing.
1: This came out of an idea that Dr. Bob had after reading an article in The Atlantic about exactly what we're talking about here, super spreading. That made him really start thinking, maybe this retail kind of contact tracing that we're doing isn't the best way to deal with this kind of virus, given the way it has these big giant boluses of super spreading. Maybe we need to think about it differently. So that's what that blog post is about that Bob put together. And basically, the idea is maybe we ought to be thinking about this as when we get cases. Let's say there's a football game last night at Cardinal Stadium, it was limited capacity, but let's just imagine for a moment that there were some cases that came out through case investigations from the tailgate or from the football game itself. Then he was thinking, well, instead of saying, do this retail, who were you around for 15 minutes within six feet or more kind of contact tracing to say, Hey, if you were at the game, then you were potentially exposed. So think of it as more of an invent type of contact tracing rather than retail person-to-person. So Maricopa County Public Health is looking at that, thinking about incorporating that into what they do as part of their contact tracing efforts to bring it back a level so that they're putting some focus on these super-spreading events. It's an interesting idea.
3: My understanding from your example, the football game last night, my understanding was only Seahawks fans could either spread
1: it or get it. Yeah. Well, that would make sense. It's those it's those colors they wear, you know? Are we doing contact tracing?
2: I can't tell you the number of patients that I've had that have turned positive. And the only reason I find out about it is because I keep track of them. And I find out after the fact. To date, never, zero, been contacted, notified, warned, or told, hey, by the way, that person you treated turned positive for COVID.
1: None. Well, then Josh. But here's my understanding about what Maricopa County is doing as an example, which is now that there's a reasonable number of cases, no one can expect Maricopa County to do contact tracing the way things were in June and July. It was just off the charts, community spread. But now that it's at a lower boil, it's possible to actually do case investigations for many of the cases and then do follow-up contact tracing. And I know Maricopa is reaching out to all the patients where they have contact information on, but they're subject to their ability to get someone to call them back. They have a lot of cell phone numbers. And the last time that I heard back, Pima County told me they're trying to do a case investigation on everyone, but they're only able to get callbacks or get people to pick up the phone or reply to a text 40% of the time. Case investigations and contact tracing depends on cooperation and people following up, there's probably lots of different reasons why people aren't getting back with the contact tracer folks, not the least of which is if you don't recognize a phone number these days, a lot of people aren't going to answer. I'm not saying that's why the callback rate has been low, but
0: maybe Josh, you might know more. Maybe not more, but supplementary. Let me say it that way. Megan Jen, one of the professors at ASU helped train a bunch of people to help Maricopa County in case investigation, and I know that they have been very busy trying to do case investigation. What they are finding, and what we also find in other circumstances, is that people are less forthcoming than you'd like them to be in this context. They don't always respond, either by not returning phone calls, or even when they do talk, they are reluctant to give up names. They view this as, quote unquote, snitching, and they're worried that come back to them as having You know, told on someone, even though it's all for the greater good and there's nothing illegal whatsoever, it's just people are reluctant to give up a name because they're worried that that person will then be angry that they have to shelter for two weeks or whatever. It has been a big problem. And in fact, a number of us are actually starting to think about these digital phone apps that indicate to you that you have been near somebody for long enough period of time at close enough distance to warrant a contact. Now, they are fully anonymous. These apps do not track the names of the people you were near. They just simply tell you, on the basis of very clever technology, that you were near someone for long enough to be considered a contact and that you should quarantine. Although even that does depend on the cooperation of people who are positive, though it seems like people are more willing to do that than they are to do contact tracing, the traditional thing.
2: We operate right now, in general, a low-trust environment, that individual people are receiving messages on their phones or electronically or in the mail from people that aren't relevant to them. And in general, that relevancy means they're gonna filter it out and they're gonna try to ignore. And so official communication becomes much harder to do. It should inform your policy that you honestly cannot do a test and trace. That whatever policy we put forward, unless you have Different means other than few well intentioned volunteers and a couple of staff that you've paid to make phone calls, your tracing capabilities aren't going to be enough to manage this pandemic, that you're going to have to find a different policy, shutting things down, masking or
1: others. Here's the way I look at the tested trace is that I think it was oversold at the beginning as a solution to this thing. And that if we just did great contact tracing, that would be enough. But I look at it more like a layer of protection to slow the spread. Face coverings are a layer of protection, distancing is a layer, restaurant capacity limits is a layer. All these things are layers of protection, but none of them in and of themselves are the answer. So I think contact tracing was oversold as the solution rather than a solution.
0: Don't forget the importance of testing itself. I'm a big believer that the testing itself is an intervention. One of the best examples I could point to that is the university. We have implemented randomized testing. And so every student knows that there's a chance that they will get a notification today that they have to go in for testing. And although our numbers at the beginning of the semester shot up initially, they have come down to very low numbers. I, in part, attribute that to the fact that everybody knows that they could get tested and people are pretty well behaved. And of course, we do have a lot of mitigation and factors in place at the university, but our numbers are well below the community numbers.
3: So as a parent of an ASU student, I will ask this question. Is the amount of emphasis that's being put on testing at Arizona State University actually possibly leading students to believe that they don't need to isolate as long as they continue to test?
0: No, no. I, students understand that they need to follow the other mitigation factors. In fact, that's emphasized repeatedly as well. I can't speak for the minds of the students, but I can tell you that the university emphasizes everything, including spacing, including staying in your room when you're not needed to be out, including mask wearing when you're out, all those things. As part of our testing program, we do testing for a number of different charitable organizations and for different companies and such. And overall, my experience with them is that a lot of them have done very well and kept the numbers very low. And I think part of it is just routine testing.
3: Let's turn to vaccination plans. Will? Will? Talk to us about what the state of Arizona did release, whether it's a detailed plan or not, how that is going to play out moving forward.
1: Yeah. So given the amount of information that we have right now, the planning document that they put out last week was pretty good. Here's the way I liken it to that. If you, it's a 51 page plan. What it does is describe how they will go about making decisions and how they will go about their future planning The guidance document that they put out last week isn't like, this is what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. And these are the priority populations that will be, and this is how we're going to vaccinate them and all like that. It was, this is the process that we're going to use as we make decisions. And these are the entities and people that we will tap to help us make better decisions. So one of the things that they had in there was basically, it's a group of, I'd say, 25 different stakeholders that they're gonna bring together from time to time to help them figure out priority populations for the early doses of vaccine, whether and how to do mass vaccination clinics and where to do those. So it's not saying where they're gonna do it, but how they're gonna do it. I was pleased that in the document, they will be leaning heavily on the county health departments because one of the things I had feared is that would be kind of a top-down planning document because that can tend to happen in state government sometimes. But instead, it talked about how the county health departments are going to be really key critical partners. And that's great, because county health departments know their communities best. They have a lot more granular retail detail in their communities. So that was good. And I want to give a shout out to one thing that was in the plan, which I loved, their academic partnership between ASU and the state looking at doing some GIS mapping and hospital discharge data analyses so that they could get more refined information to the counties so that they could target mass vaccination activities, basically to better inform their decisions, which is great. I've always loved to see partnerships between county and state health departments and academia Because truly, it's a synergistic combination. I don't know if
0: that's a biodesign thing or if it's some other folks at ASU that are... That particular one may be other folks. Certainly, biodesign has now developed very pretty strong relationships, both with the county and with the state. We're in touch with them constantly now. And we're glad to see that they're embracing university.
1: The next thing after this planning document, we'll find out what happens in the phase three trial data. We'll see what happens regarding emergency use authorization or full approval of vaccine. We'll see what CDC says about the priority populations. We'll know what the cold holding temperature requirements are, which is what we'll need to know for the logistics of yeah. how to get out the vaccine. And then you could expect to see the state, I think, put out an operational plan. Yeah, That's the plan with the who, what, when, where, and why.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about that, for the cold chain required for the vaccine? Because there are certain parts of this state that lack for infrastructure
1: the different candidate vaccines have different cold chain requirements. So I think the Pfizer one is negative 70 degrees centigrade holding. The normal freezer in your house is zero Fahrenheit. This is negative 70 C. So that's like negative 94 Fahrenheit or something super cold. So these are not commercial refrigerators, freezers that you buy. Those vaccines will require a cold chain that's more challenging. There are other vaccines that just have the regular frozen, like your regular house freezer temperature, zero F. So those will be easier. And then you have to look at how many hours that the vaccine vials can be thawed out before you have to use it. And so that will be something that they have to take into consideration is once you thaw them out, you have to be able to vaccinate Because
0: you don't want to spoil any vaccine. One thing to remember is that even for those vaccines that require the minus 70 or minus 80 storage, you can keep those vaccines on dry ice, which keeps them at that temperature. So if you have a good styrofoam box or something that can keep things cold and you fill them with dry ice, you can put them in there for sometimes a day or two. So you can get them out to more distant parts of the state, even without minus 80 freezers.
2: I guess it depends on which vaccination gets to approval and usage first. knowing that you may have multiples. So there's two other issues with vaccinations that kind of come to mind. And the first is how do you keep track of who got what vaccine if there's multiple vaccines? And then second question is how do you establish trust in the populations that you absolutely positively have to get it out to? who currently have a low level of trust that the vaccine will either be safe or that the people making decisions consider folks like them?
1: The answer to the first one's easy. Arizona was on the forefront of vaccine tracking. When Governor Symington was in office way back then, his wife was big into childhood vaccinations, and there was a lot of effort in state government put into building the ACES system, which is Arizona's vaccine tracking system. And so the plan that was released last week talked about using that ACES system, which was designed for kids, but you can put adults into the system. And I think even it's been expanded to adults anyway now. So we have a way of tracking in the ACES system who got what vaccine. And you could put Pfizer vaccine or Moderna. There's a field for that. So that one is pretty easy. We've got the infrastructure. Yes, there's users' IDs and passwords and There's this things like that, but most providers who do vaccinations, like the ones in the Vaccines for Children program and the pediatricians and the community health centers and the like, they know how to use Aces and all. So there'd be some training if there's people that are giving these vaccines that don't use Aces now. And then the confidence in the vaccine, how do you do that? I think it's important to A, be super transparent about the results that are in the phase three data so that those are publicly available and transparency tends to build trust. And then B, go through full approval and don't go out with mass vaccination clinics under emergency use authorization. Then you haven't gone through the fine tooth comb of the data that happens during the FDA approval process.
0: I think some confidence will come back once the elections are over and people feel like there's a little bit less politics in it. You're absolutely right. And I think everybody's committed to going through the full process. So,
3: Nick, as the guy who could be in the room when the plunger gets pushed on the vaccination, do you buy that?
2: Yes, because I personally have a lot of trust in the process that the people who would stand to benefit from profiting the most reaching a 7 billion person market are the ones who are tapping the brakes and saying, we need to slow down. It's people who have spent their entire lives dedicated to the professionalism of being a PhD and a researcher who understand that there's much bigger stakes at play here, other than we got to get to market first. It's an unusual thing to see in a company like Pfizer or or Moderna or some of these companies that they want to make sure they get to the market when it's safe, not when they're first. That, to me, shows that there are scientists, at least in charge, saying there are steps we need to go through and we need to go through each one of these steps because they all have a purpose not to delay the inevitable but to make sure that we don't do harm. You can't give a vaccine without engendering an immune response, and that immune response inevitably, when spread out over an entire population of people, will result in some cases a Guillain-Barre and some cases of other immune complications.
3: As a council member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, expand your view beyond yourself and talk about
2: what what
3: your profession is looking at in terms of vaccine confidence and thinking about the people that you are directly in contact with, the general public?
2: Well, it's going to come out all as a tumult because there's a lot in there. But what we are expecting out of a vaccination is that the people making the vaccine adhere to the highest level of scientific standards because once you start giving this vaccination, there's no going back. You can't take that vaccine back. It's like doing a surgery. You own the outcomes. You're not gonna be able to undo the impact that you've made. So we at one level are saying, you need to get this out as quick as possible. And the other level we're saying, you need to take as long as you need. We're aware that the trend in cases is going up. We expect this winter to be bad. I personally expect Arizona's winter to not be quite so bad because people get to go outside during the winter rather than be stuck inside but that's a whole nother thing. The college is concerned that there's going to be a bad winter, but we are, me just speaking, we are resigned to the fact that that's already baked in the cake, that we are on a path that is not something that we can avert yet, that we are in for a tough winter one way or the other. And we are sort of prepared and ready for it, but we are in mourning. And so for the American College of Emergency Physicians, specifically, we are mourning one, Dr. Lorna Breen, who was medical director for an ER in New York. And in the middle of the pandemic, she got COVID recovered and went back to work. Her particular ER was one that was very hard hit to the point where they were running out of oxygen coming out of the wall. They were using oxygen tanks for COVID patients in the waiting room. And those oxygen tanks were running out of oxygen. They had people die in the waiting rooms for lack of oxygen. And post-COVID, she came back, was working a lot of shifts, 12-hour shifts, wouldn't go home because she's the medical director and her people were working long hours anyway. And she committed suicide. It was too much for her her family noted that her demeanor had changed. This was a woman who had never met a challenge she couldn't overcome. She was into being a medical director because she really liked her staff and she dedicated herself for her staff. And when she couldn't fix the problem, this is the story we're telling ourselves. We think that it was too much for her. She had been treated with psychiatric treatment. She'd been to counseling, been hospitalized for depression. But after the hospitalization let go, she chose to take her own life. We are talking amongst ourselves about how we need buddy checks. We need to stay with each other, pick each other up, and to see each other through this winter that we expect to come.
3: Will, I wanna come back to the vaccination plan. You're the guy in the room here who's had intimate experience with prior pandemics, relative to your experience with H1N1, does it look like we're on a good track? Are we going to be ready when we get the vaccine? And do we feel comfortable relative to what you've seen in the past that Arizona is going to be able to respond proactively and effectively once the vaccine is available?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you framed it that way. This pandemic is obviously way more challenging than H1N1 was with respect to the epidemiology, the healthcare part of it, the hospital system pieces, et cetera, and the fact that it super spreads, which is different from influenza. But when it comes to the vaccine, there's a lot of similarities between H1N1 and the vaccine program there and what will happen here. Now, one big difference is H1N1 vaccine, you didn't need a booster. This one, you're going to need a booster. that part of it's harder, but the ACEs program is there. Last time we used the vaccine for children infrastructure to roll out the vaccine, to find the vaccinators. That was only 10 years ago. So those processes are still available to find those folks to do those vaccination community health centers and places like that. And then each county health department and H1N1 made their own decisions about how to get the vaccine out to, especially the kids groups, Maricopa County, Bob England, he went from school to school and they did mass vaccination clinics in schools. Other counties decided that they were going to roll it through their normal infrastructure and have pediatricians do the vaccinations for H1N1. But once we get to the vaccine stage, we have lots of advantages. There's not a big box of unknowns when it comes to the vaccine. Vaccine programs are tried and true, tested. The providers know how to do it. The systems are in place. Reimbursement systems are clear and in place. There's some decisions, obviously, that you have to make about which populations go first. There's going to be some logistics that come out of the cold chain requirements and that kind of stuff. Once we get to the vaccine stage, I don't anticipate a whole lot of problems because there's a lot fewer unknowns. We know The system is pretty good at getting vaccine out.
0: I'm in agreement with everything Will said. I'm hopeful that people have a good plan in place and that we know how to do all this. We certainly have demonstrated that in the past. And we can get over the, the distrust issues and the concern issues. I think we'll get adoption and people will start doing it.
1: And remember, part of this, how deep we need to go into the population will depend a lot on how effective the vaccine is. So back of the envelope calculation, let's say we need to get to 65% immunity so that we're at herd level. And we're going to achieve 15% of that, let's say, with natural immunity. Those are people that get infected and recover. So that means you need another 50% of the population to get immunity through the vaccine. That's a function of how effective the vaccine is times the percentage of the population that you can get vaccinated. So if, for example the vaccine is 70% effective, then you need to vaccinate 70% of the population. Because seven times seven is 49, gets you half, plus the 15% of people that recovered after natural immunity. But if we're lucky and the vaccine is 80% effective, then you could get away with six times eight is 48, about 63% of the population getting vaccinated. But the vaccine might not be as effective. It might be 60% effective and that would mean you have to vaccinate 80% of the population. So a lot is going to depend on what it shows in the phase three trials on how effective these different vaccines are and that will give us a clue about how many people we need to get vaccinated.
2: Train leaves Albuquerque at (laughs) 5 traveling
0: 80 miles an hour. I know. I was just going to say, Josh surely has an algorithm for all this. That sounds about right, though. I mean, I think, you know, they're all ballpark figures, and it really, and of course, it's not just one vaccine. There's going to be potentially multiple vaccines. And I don't think we're going to have enough of any one vaccine to hit everybody. So we may have to count on getting back to your train in the station, right? There might be 80% of this vaccine and 40% of that vaccine, and, you know, it'll be mixtures, right?
3: trains a b and c lead from
2: (laughs) i think this brings up a very active debate that's going on right now which is how do we get to the end of this and what does normal look like at the end of it a lot of people have thrown out that we need to get to herd immunity but i've heard people saying afterwards well herd immunity isn't the end it just means that you start to go down in the number of people that are vulnerable to infection so the overall infection goes down so my question is this is there a risk of On one part, flattening out the curve too much to where we end up with endless rounds of epidemics versus should we just pull off the Band-Aid and go to herd immunity? And then once we get to vaccinated herd immunity, what does it look like?
1: I don't think that we should expect to get to a place where there's zero risk of spread of this virus. We're not going to get to like where this is like measles, but we'll do better than, say, influenza because influenza has these big antigenic shifts, which was why we have to create a new vaccine every year. So I think it'll be somewhere in between where there's sporadic spread of this virus for a long time, but not such that it jeopardizes the hospital system and overwhelms the system. And the other thing is treatments will get better over time. The scientific method has been churning away at this for six months now. There's some answers that have come out of it and there will be more. Look how treatments improved. I'm not talking therapeutics, but like drugs, but treatments really improved. You guys have figured out, no, let's not intubate people, not put tubes in throats right away. Let's not put them on vents. There's other things we could do. So things are getting better on that way.
2: It's sobering to think that the primary thing that we did to improve mortality in COVID was stop hurting people.
1: Our primary
2: intervention was we stopped making it worse and we started doing nothing, literally. What do I do for my COVID patient? Well, do they need oxygen? No, well, okay, nothing. Well, if they need oxygen, what do you do? Give them oxygen. The other thing that we've learned is you don't need to intubate them because you can do what's called prone. You can put people on their front, whereas normally folks will lay on their back or sit upright. Mm. Whatever particular reason, the inflammation in the lungs really shrinks the lungs in the bases and in the back. But if you put people sort of laying on their chest, and I've done this for patients who are hypoxic on a high level of oxygen, it inflates and starts to perfuse different parts of the lungs where, boom, all of a sudden your guy is now 98% on two liters, where he was 88% on 15 liters. I have watched that happen within like five or 10 minutes. It's crazy, but we've stopped hurting people and that's helped us to make people survive.
0: Is that a VQ mismatch type thing that you're doing?
2: Completely. Yeah, it completely. So I had a family member get it and ended up almost in the ICU. And I talked with the intensivists and I was kind of trying to work through it. And they were basically saying, look, this person may be borderline hypoxic, 89% on a 100% non-rebreather, like their oxygen saturation may still be low, but are they confused? No. Are they looking short of breath? No. Well, then we tolerate the hypoxia. That's been the biggest change that we've done in the six months that I've been treating this is the the pulmonologist and the intensivist have started to tolerate hypoxia depending upon how the person responds to it.
0: Don't treat a number, treat the patient.
2: Right. We've thrown everything at the wall to see if it sticks. We've thrown zinc, hydrochloroquine. We've thrown azithromycin. We've thrown decadron. We've thrown uh, remdesivir. And we've thrown uh, convalescent plasma. And almost all of the data has shown that only one thing really helps in that treatment, and that's the decadron for people who need oxygen. Beyond that, convalescent plasma, meh. Remdesivir, not really, and I'm not surprised, but really it's supporting your own body's immune response through it so that it doesn't get a little too crazy and that you generate an immune response so that we don't do harm is the primary thing that we've done since then.
3: Thank you, Nick, for your tireless dedication to emergency room patients. Thank you, Josh, and everyone at ASU for the modeling and community partnerships to help meet our challenges, and Will, Thank you for your nonstop ideas, insights, and advocacy born of deep public health experience, not to mention wrangling a pandemic or two. Let's be clear, super spreaders are a thing, made possible by large gatherings with conditions that make them ideal as super spreader events. As Will and Nick and Josh have pointed out, there is no silver bullet, but rather, there are layers of solutions that can build up to a stronger wall of defense. It takes everything that we know, that has a positive effect against COVID-19 just to keep things from getting worse. So let's do it. Do not be fatigued or relaxed when it comes to COVID-19. Just as importantly, don't forget that a twindemic of flu and rising COVID cases is possible. And avoiding that twindemic that would overburden hospital emergency rooms is up to us. Number one, get your flu shot now to help avoid the combined effect of flu and COVID on our neighbors, our healthcare professionals and our hospitals. Number two, make sure you continue to wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. It can help prevent COVID and the flu from spreading. Number three, testing can help. It's more broadly available and it's free. When in doubt, get tested. Lastly, remember that we are in a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we will get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back in two weeks. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Last week, episode 50 introduced you to Vitalist's brand new health data dashboard. A few weeks ago, episode 48 offered an intriguing and insightful episode featuring three incredible emerging leaders from Tucson. There is a lot more to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcasts. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or... Listen to The Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.